invite you to open your Bibles to the last book, the book of Revelation. We're going to be looking at a, a passage of about 11 verses in chapter 7. Chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. As we uh, start our way into this month of July, most of you will know that we've kind of charted out this month in particular to think together about the work of reconciliation as a church. I want to make you aware of a few different ways you can enter into that conversation with us. Uh, one is to pick up this book that we've invited the whole congregation to read during this month of July. It's written by uh, Dr. John Perkins. It's called One Blood. And I think you've already heard it's available downstairs in the fellowship hall. Uh, I think the copies are $10. And if we run out today, I know we have more copies coming uh, by next Sunday. So if you can't find it, hopefully you'll get it by next Sunday. As you begin to read, I'd encourage you to, to find opportunities to, to bring some of those ideas and thoughts uh, into conversation with each other. Call up a friend, connect with someone at JCC to, to think about these things together. Also want you to know on Thursday, July 15th, which will be a couple, couple weeks from now, um, we have a, a short film that actually details the life and ministry of John Perkins. Uh, I think it's a, it's a wonderful kind of next introduction to, to who he is and his heart for the church and his heart for reconciliation. So Thursday, July 15th at 6.30, um, let me invite you, we'll gather here. The film's not even 30 minutes long, but hopefully we'll have a time to watch that together and also then maybe begin to, to, to talk about and, and to share some of what we've been reading and thinking uh, as we, we read his book with one another. My hope, though, is that, that from these things, from the time we spend together in this month, that we gain a, a vision for what reconciliation looks like. A vision of a reconciled church. And what I mean by that is, is a vision of how Jesus desires his body, his people, to be a place where there are not walls of hostility right, that divide us or, or separate us on the basis of, of ethnicity or culture or color or class or, or education, that we would be a people reflective of, of the full diversity and power of his work in the world. But I think we, we need a vision, and my, my prayer is that this morning, as we look at Revelation, we will, we will be given that kind of vision. I don't know if you've ever had the chance to travel out to the West Coast, to the Redwood Forest, but if you've ever stood under that, that grove, that canopy of giant sequoia trees, or even if you've just looked intensely at a photo of it for a few minutes, you'll know how awe-inspiring a vision those trees can provide. Based on their size, their age, they're, they're, they're a, a place, one of the places that I've been in my lifetime that truly causes you to stop and just wonder. Strikes you with a sense of awe. I want you to imagine if you traveled out to California with your family and maybe you had a young child along with you on that visit. 
And upon seeing one of these incredible trees, what if the child who was with you asked you this? What sort of tree is this? And where did it come from? How did it get here? How would you begin to tell the story of a giant sequoia tree? That's a, that's a tall order, no pun intended. You would have to, to go back further than, than a thousand years into the past and describe this incredible work of God planting and growing and nurturing and cultivating this incredible forest. Now imagine after going to visit the sequoia forest and after being asked that question, where did these trees come from? Imagine you're back home, you're unpacking your suitcases here, and that same child looks to you again and says, can we plant a sequoia tree here? Can we plant a sequoia forest in our own backyard? How would you respond then? Would that even seem possible? Today, as we think together about where reconciliation comes from and whether it's possible in our own backyard, I want to take you for a visit. I want to travel with you together to what I think is an awe-inspiring vision here in Revelation 7. It's a a vision that I think is sequoia-like in its grandeur, in its magnificence in the awe that it inspires. And it describes this massive assembly of those that Jesus loves. An assembly drawn from every ethnicity, every culture, every color, every language on the face of the earth. And I want to go there together with you this morning because I want us to begin this month with this vision fixed clearly in our minds. This vision that Jesus is committed to making his people gloriously diverse, but also gloriously one people. My hope is that with the certainty of that promise, that this is what we one day must and will become, that we would have the courage and faith Start planting those seeds of reconciliation today in this place and among this people. Let me pray for us as we look together at the scriptures. Lord Jesus, we are a people because you have desired to make us a people. Not because of anything we have done in our own wisdom or strength. Lord, may we delight, may we celebrate, may we fall humbly upon the foundation of the church. Jesus, the cornerstone. Jesus, the lamb who was slain. Jesus, the one to whom every tribe, tongue, and nation will one day bow and confess that you are Lord of all things. Lord, as I preach this morning, may the words of my mouth 
May the meditations of every heart in your church be pleasing in your sight. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Read with me in Revelation 7, starting in verse 9. This is a vision, again, given to the Apostle John during a time of great distress, a time of great discouragement in the life of the early church. And you'll know that John was in exile on the island of Patmos. When an angel comes to him and and begins to unfold this vision, this revelation of what is real and true in the heavenly realms so that it might encourage John to, to follow and to have strength in what the Lord desires to do in the earthly realm through his church. And so he's given this great vision of things yet to come. And part of that vision we get here this morning. John sees first a vision of of the 12 tribes of Israel, of the 144,000 faithful that, that the Lord assembles before the throne. And then we get this global vision starting in verse 9. After this, John says, I looked, and there was before me a great multitude that no one could count, a multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and holding palm branches or signs of victory in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and around the four living creatures. And they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Most of us know this passage. Many of us love this passage. This particular scripture is one that has inspired numerous hymns. It shows up in worship courses. I've heard some of you pray it spontaneously as we worship together here at JCC. This vision captures our our holy imaginations. Picture yourself among the the massive multitude that John describes here. Think of of the day he is describing when this, this massive group of people, too huge to even begin to count, stands together and and you begin to hear first in Mongolian and then in the the Quechua language and then in Swahili and then in Hindi and then in English and then in Spanish and then in Chinese and then in every possible language on the face of the earth. This group of people harmonizing and praising the glorious name of Jesus. John says they are singing as one unified people. In the the first chapter of John Perkins' book, One Blood, 
He recounts the experience of, of one Sunday morning worshiping with a congregation in Maryland. And noticing on that morning how beautifully diverse that body was. Faces and voices drawn from all sorts of backgrounds. And he said he sensed in that moment that he was privy to a glimpse of heaven in their worship together. Perkins wonders with us why the church isn't more like this. Why couldn't the church, why shouldn't the church, why mustn't the church become a church of every tribe, tongue, and nation gathered together in one place? But if we're, if we're honest, right, if we look at most cities, most towns, most churches in the United States, we are not a church that looks like this. Most Christians worship with those who make about as much money as they do. Most Christians worship with people who come from the same cultural or color backgrounds that they do. Most Christians worship with people who have about the same amount of education as they do. And I think that that experience is so normal, it's so normative for us that we almost fail to notice it any longer. We grow comfortable with our divisions, with our separations. And that's because the work of diversity, the work of of drawing together is difficult. I've asked Paul Kinstead to come up this morning, and Paul uh, is one of our deacons here. Paul has also been reading this book together with a group of us throughout the winter. And I've asked him to share some of his own experiences in this area of reconciliation in the church um, and in a bit of his own testimony. So, Paul, would you come up and share some of those thoughts with us today? Like many Americans, I have been on a journey this past year to navigate the exploding world of racial justice and reconciliation. And a group of us here at JCC met regularly since January to consider what our roles as individuals and as a church should look like at such a time as this. And Pastor Dave has asked some of us to share our stories as he embarks on this sermon series that will focus on racial inequality and reconciliation more broadly. So here I am this morning, and context is everything. Every story has a beginning, and therefore I ask you to bear with me for a few moments as I drift back in time more than half a century ago in order to frame out the beginning of my story. So here goes. There once was a young African-American boy named Randy who lived with his brothers and sisters and mother in the black section of inner city Boston. Randy grew up during the race riots of the 1960s that followed the assassination of Martin Luther King, a time when inner cities across the country were in flames. Randy's sister became concerned about her little brother and so she reached out to her pastor 
a prominent leader of an influential black church in Boston. This pastor took great interest in Randy, legally adopting him and becoming a wise, loving, and steadfastly dedicated father. Randy eventually followed in his father's footsteps and became a pastor, a mentor to many black youth, a PhD-trained leader, a published author, and like his father, a great man of God. Now, even as this story was unfolding, another was being woven into place. There once was a white couple living in the comfortable and safe suburbs of Boston during the 1960s who felt that there was something terribly, terribly wrong in America and even within the body of Christ. They fervently wanted to reach into the lives of their black brothers and sisters to extend love and to seek healing in some, some small way. So they opened up their hearts to the church leadership of their local church, but the couple's pleas fell on deaf ears. The church leadership did not want to get involved. The sad irony is that more than a century earlier, faithful members of this long-standing New England church had been part of the Underground Railroad and had harbored fugitive slaves from the South escaping to Canada. It was said that church members covertly brought, brought their fleeing black brothers and sisters in Christ to this same church building where a secret closet lay hidden off to the back of the balcony above the sanctuary. There, the escaped slaves could at least hear the worship service unseen through the walls of that dark secret closet. The couple's young son, was intrigued by that secret closet, thinking it to be really cool, oblivious to the profound sadness and horror that the secret closet had witnessed so long ago. Undeterred, the couple struck out on their own and through the husband's tenacity became connected with a prominent black church in Boston. There, they were able to arrange for a young boy named Randy to spend an extended summer visit with the family in the white suburbs amidst the American dream. Randy and my parents, for of course it is my parents of whom I speak, developed a deep and abiding love for one another. Randy returned to spend more summertime with our white family in the suburbs. He remained connected with our family and many years later in 2008, he carved out time from his incredibly hectic schedule to fly from his home in Washington, D.C. to speak at my mother's funeral, and a year and a half later at my father's funeral. I will never forget how Randy's love for my parents electrified all in attendance at mom's memorial service. And so I'd like for all of you to listen to Randy's opening words of tribute to my mother, and please listen carefully. In the mid-1960s, America was openly groaning beneath the weight of social upheaval and a loss of innocence. All across the horizons, people seemed blinded by an ever-increasing moral decay 
that pulled at the skirts of a society already tattered by political uncertainty and unpopular war and yes, the raging stain and strain of individual and institutional racism. Although I was a young lad, fresh off the bus from Jim Crow South, I well remember the riots of 1968 when Dr. King was killed, anger, discouragement, hopelessness, disenfranchisement, all lingered in the air like an ominous blanket of smog. As a young child, I overheard the disillusioned voices of adults chattering about the dismal plight of blacks and how we as a people had lost a man whose voice stood as a beacon for the impoverished and those who had systemically been locked out and blocked from the American dream. Considering it was the restless 60s, as a young African-American boy in urban America, I was poised to at least be distrustful and quite possibly hostile to everything embodied in white America. But God. But God sovereignly orchestrated circumstances and 40 years ago into my young life came a saintly man named Ed and a phenomenal soft-spoken woman named Amy. Speaking to that all-white gathering in an overwhelmingly white suburban church, Randy then went on to express his love and his appreciation for my mother, poignantly demonstrating what race relations can look like with God's help. I cherish Randy's words, but God, but God. Church, we cannot do this alone. We cannot orchestrate racial reconciliation in our own wisdom or strength, but God can. And this then leads me to the sad part of my own story. Though I had witnessed what racial reconciliation can look like from childhood, it unfolded under my very nose. I ran away from the festering issue of racial inequality in America. I completely blocked out the inner city from my mind with all of its intractable problems, and I retreated to the insulated, bucolic comfort of Vermont. I concluded almost unconsciously that it's just too complicated, too overwhelming for me as one person to deal with the issues of black America and the inner city. Now please understand that I have loved Vermont since childhood. I am so honored, so blessed to have raised my children here. I am so deeply, deeply grateful for the life that I have been given. But lurking beneath all of my genuine thankfulness, just below the surface, was an ugly, sinful callousness towards my black brothers and sisters. I was without excuse. I simply knew too much. And yet decade after decade passed, 
and I remained unmoved in my callousness, the sin becoming ever more entrenched, my heart ever more hardened, my love ever more cold, and that terrifies me. But God, as Randy said, but God intervened last summer when as a deacon I found myself pondering the newly formed women's racial justice ministry at JCC. And literally in the blink of an eye, a snap of a finger, my eyes were opened to the reality of what had happened in my life. And I found myself confronted with the clear voice of the Lord saying, it's time, Paul. It's time to stop running. It's time. And so here I am. Why am I telling you my story? Because I believe that for some of you, like for me, perhaps it's time. So I invite you to join with me and others in the church to walk beside us in this journey as we confront those places where sin has resided quietly, tethered to racial injustice. And join us as we seek a path towards reconciliation with our black brothers and sisters in Christ, with the community of color more broadly, with our Native American brothers and sisters. There's so much to be done, church. And this is not going to be easy. The world has many ideas about what the path to racial justice and reconciliation should look like. But in the church, we don't take our marching orders from the world. We look to the Holy Spirit for his marching orders, and we hold fast to the anchor of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as revealed in Scripture. Because if we do that, he will make our path straight, as Pastor Pete talked about last Sunday. As for me, I have no idea what the path that lies before us will look like. I have no clue whatsoever what my role in this personally is meant to be. I can't see it yet, but I can't wait to find out. Thanks be to God. Paul, thank you for sharing part of your story. Thank you for your humility in that as well. I think as Paul's story illustrates, what's familiar, what's, what's common to us is separation, is division, is, is the, the comfort that those things offer or, or promise to us, and, and to push away that which is unfamiliar or difficult. What's truly unusual then is when we stumble onto or stumble into a community that actually pulls together unfamiliar people people that are divided in other places, a community that brings them together to share one name, one space, one family, one body. And if and when that happens, we, we need an explanation. We want to know how in the world this is possible. And I think that's precisely what is happening here in John's vision in Revelation 7. Because as he gazes out over this incredibly diverse yet unified body worshiping the name of Jesus, people that don't belong together, not in John's day, not in our day, 
As he looks out over that multitude, someone approaches John to ask him, to quiz him about what he sees. Look at verses 13 and 14. As John was looking out over this incredible multitude, it says, Then one of the elders present asked me, These these people in white robes, this multitude, who are they? Where did they come from? And so John answered, Sir, you know. Who are they? Where in the world did they come from? How did such an unusual gathering of people come into existence? It's an incredible question. It's an incredible response from John. I love the way he responds here. He doesn't make up an answer. He has no idea how the warring factions of his world could possibly get this close to each other. Instead, John wisely expresses the kind of humility that all of us could use a hefty dose of these days. John pleads his own ignorance. And he puts the question back to the elder. He puts the question back to heaven. And he says, sir, you know. Fill me in. Help me out. In the same way, I think it would be hubris for me or for any of us to to stand before you this morning and suggest we have any special notion of how to address the wounds of, of racial division or class division or political division or any of the things that divide us as a body. Even John Perkins, who's who's been working at these issues for 60 years, he says in his book, the problem of reconciliation in our country and in our churches is much too big to be wrestled to the the ground by plans that begin in the minds of men. Perkins says, this is a God-sized problem. And if that's true, if... If our division is a God-sized problem and the work of reconciliation is a God-sized work, then we need a a God-sized revelation to understand how this is possible. But I think we are given that here in verses 14 through 17 in the way this elder answers John's question. Who are these reconciled people worshiping together from every tribe and tongue and nation. Where did they come from? Well, the elder says, let me tell you. Look at 14b. The elder said to John, these are they who have come out of great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eye. 
conclusion, I, I want to draw three observations about who the elder says this reconciled group of people are, where they have come from. The first thing we see in these verses is that those who are gathered around the throne of Jesus, those who are deeply reconciled to each other, are a people who have endured great tribulation. The Greek word here in verse 14, thalipsis, means to, to be squashed, literally. It means to be under great pressure. It means to be oppressed. It's a word that in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is used again and again of the Israelite people in bondage in Exodus. While the specific tribulation or suffering that, that this group in, in the heavenly realm has endured isn't, isn't specified here, I think it's safe to say that there are many forms of tribulation, many forms of oppression, many forms of suffering that the people of God have suffered throughout history and that our brothers and sisters in the church continue to endure today. One of those sources is is the racism that we have tolerated in our past, a racism that can still be present in the body of Christ today. Deep wounds have been inflicted on men and women who bear the image of their Lord. And wherever our Lord sees or hears of that suffering, we know that he is grieved. Like the Lord at the beginning of Exodus, he, he hears the cries of his people and he is moved by them. Pastor and New Testament scholar Esau Macaulay describes the, the suffering, the tribulation experienced by many children of color in the United States today. And reflecting on his own youth, he says, little black girls and black boys often collect slights, large and small, as they navigate the cities and towns, the highways, the back roads of the United States. He says, there is a sense of not rightness that grows in their young black hearts. He reflects on, on a suffering, on a longing, on a sense of not rightness in his own life that he experienced simply because of the color of his skin. To be part of the reconciled people of God, the people that will be gathered around that throne in the heavenly realms, means that we learn how to stand in solidarity and in relationship with people who suffer for all sorts of reasons. We need to be people who are humble enough to hear the cries of our brothers and sisters. And even to consider when the Holy Spirit would prompt us to, to move into those tribulations where possible. Because they're our brothers and sisters. The work that God desires to do, the reconciliation that God desires to bring in his church, means we need to be willing to move closer to those who are experiencing tribulation, suffering. To move closer to those who are not right in their spirits. But we're also told that this incredible multitude who has come through great suffering and great tribulation together, we're promised that there is a day reflected in this vision when that multitude comes out 
John says, of this great tribulation. And it says they come through or come out of the great tribulation because they are a people who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Look at 14 and 15. The new family that that John sees gathered there in heaven endures and, and comes through and receives victory from that season of tribulation. Not because they defended themselves with the weapons of hatred or self-righteousness or retaliation. Instead, the, the elder standing next to John says, this body of worshipers has received victory because they are those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. One commentator says, this army of worshipers overcomes the world not by force, but through the victory of the Lamb who was slain for them. They trust more in the cross of Jesus than in their claims to power and privilege. Can we say the same of ourselves today? Do we trust more in the cross of Jesus than in the power and the privilege we possess otherwise? Tony Campolo, Christian author, professor, recounts the story of a man named Inho Oh. And Oh was a, a Korean graduate student at the University of Pennsylvania, studying in the 1950s. And Oh, uh, one evening on a walk to the neighborhood mailbox to mail a letter to his parents back home in Korea, was assaulted by a group of teenagers, and he was killed in that assault. And in the the days which followed, these youth were brought to trial. There was a great outcry nationally about this particular act of violence, and there was vengeance being called for. There was a desire to try these youth to the fullest extent of the law and, and to give them the fullest penalty possible. But as the jury proceeded and they found the teens uh, accused of the crime guilty of murder, there was a letter sent from the victim's parents back in Korea. They had drafted a letter to address the court. Campolo writes that before a stunned audience in the courtroom, these parents begged the judge to release their son's murderers to them so that they could give these boys a home and the care they never had. In the letter, O's parents explained that they were Christians and that they wanted to show these boys something of the grace they had received from God and to those who had done them such a grievous evil. The judge explained to them, this is not the way our system of justice works. Where is it that this particular family learned such an unusual sense of justice? Well, according to their letter, they learned it from the one who washes us with his blood. 
They learned it from the Son of God who teaches us that the work of reconciliation is costly because it always draws its power from his sacrifice, which is undeserved, which is unmerited, which is weakness and foolishness in the eyes of the world. Esau Macaulay, who I quoted a few minutes ago about about the suffering he experienced as a young black man in the United States, also says this in that same chapter. He says, if there is a miracle of black Christianity, it is this, that we have also been profoundly influenced by the themes of forgiveness and the multi-ethnic community that fill the pages of the New Testament. He says, the black church has found our, our way there, has found our way to the mercy of God by means of the cross. And so along with Macaulay and along with the O family, I would argue that the testimony of Scripture is that a reconciled people must live at the foot of the cross, must cling to Jesus and the mercy he offers. We must release our rights, our privileges, so that we might be joined both to those we've wounded and also to those who've wounded us. And this is only possible if we are washed by his blood. So the elder tells John that a reconciled people are those who come through tribulation together. They experience victory in that tribulation by being washed in the mercy and the blood of Jesus. And finally, the elder tells John that what keeps this multitude together is that their attention is fixed on one thing. At the center of this multitude is the adoration of the lamb who was slain. Verse 15. Verse 15 says that this reconciled people of God stand before the the throne of God in his temple day and night offering their worship and service to God. Verse 17 says that a lamb stands at the center of the throne and that lamb will be their shepherd. A lamb who leads them to living water. A lamb who wipes the tears of suffering and tribulation from their eyes. A lamb that heals them into a beautifully reconciled people. The lamb is their center of gravity. The lamb is what they share in common with one another. It is the the glorious love of Jesus that will keep them bound through eternity together as, as one people forged in the fountain of his one blood. So as we begin this month praying that God would plant in us the seeds of reconciliation, that that would find fertile ground to grow up in us. We must keep Jesus at the center. Reconciliation is his passion. Reconciliation is his love. Reconciliation is his work. And he desires to do that by inviting all people from every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation, from every possible background to his one table. 
And this morning, we get to reflect that as a people as we come and receive the gifts of his body and his blood today together.